Hello, and welcome to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 146, where we go back to the past and discuss a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find this program for the next four Sundays at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and uh, perhaps using that little box that you uh, heat up your uh, favorite breakfast pastries in every morning. Um, Yeah, I I don't quite have the same delivery (laughs) as Reggie. I apologize for that. But uh, uh, yes, this is the uh, first of the final five episodes of the Cosmic Treadmill. Um... These, uh, these next four, uh, in particular, are uh, going to be uh, a pretty much wider sharing of uh, formerly Patreon-exclusive episodes of Cosmic Treadmill After Dark. Um, we would refer to these as uh, spicier episodes uh, because, uh, you know, normal people might call them mature, but uh, these books are anything but mature, as you'll uh, find out uh, very shortly. Um so yeah, these are a little bit uh, spicier content. Um, we do our best to, yeah, you know, PG thirteenify it as best we can, uh, as we usually would. Um, you know, a lot of uh, you know, f words and s words are replaced with forks and spits and all that good stuff. So we keep it as clean as possible. But uh, yeah, this still is probably not the episode. That you're gonna want to listen to, like if uh, you're in the car with the kids, or if you're in the office without earbuds, you probably don't want to play this episode. Uh, otherwise, you're gonna get some very strange looks. Uh, uh, as you know, uh, if you follow the uh, the program, uh, we engage in something you know, like a we 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 like to call it voice acting, uh, <laughs> um, and there are some uh, pretty unfortunate scenes in this book that uh, we. Uh, we fight our way through, and uh, yeah, you'll you'll get pretty strange looks if you're if you're listening to this in public, and uh, I, I I do apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> but I do hope you enjoy uh, this episode. This episode is a uh, cherry pop tart number one from 1982. This is the first print edition, which uh, means something because it includes something that subsequent printings did not. Um, we'll go into that deeper as we get into the actual episode itself, um, and, uh, Reggie will also be giving you a warning, uh, the same warning I just gave you <laughs> about maybe not listening to this episode with, uh, with children present, maybe with, uh, significant others present, um, almost certainly not in the office without earbuds unless you work in a, uh, very open-minded and, uh, laid-back, uh, office. But I think that's, uh... That's all I'll yammer on for uh, this week. Um, But uh, the next three episodes will be more of the After Dark, uh, the spicier variety. And uh, the week after that will be the final episode, Cosmic Treadmill episode 150, where it's going to be a a celebration of the show. Um, We're going to... I'm going to upload something that Reggie and I had discussed a long, long time ago. Um, back in early 2016, it was something we put together and uh, didn't really you know, send it out far and wide. So I think it's appropriate to uh, put a pin on this wonderful project with uh, that recording, as well as uh, opening up the, uh, the forum here to uh, listeners and friends of the show who might want to share their uh, memories of... Uh, of the program, of uh, my partnership with Reggie, um, of Reggie himself. Um, any anything, anything anybody wants to share, uh, I would love to hear it, and I would love to share it 
uh, on that final episode. So if you'd like to be a part of it, just reach out to me. I'm fairly easy to find. Uh, Ace Comics on Twitter, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Chris is on infiniteearths.com. You can find me easily. I'm not a hard dude to find. Um, so if you do want to be a part of that final episode, if you want to send me a bit of audio, send me a bit of text, or just uh, chat with me on the air, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. But uh, with all that said, I'm going to send it over to uh, to us. Uh, we're going to discuss Cherry Pop-Tart number one, uh, the creator of Cherry Pop-Tart, and uh, all that fun stuff. So uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, new-to-most episode of the Cosmic Treadmill. Thank you. I was in a contest to rock the world. First prize was a virgin young girl. For four days I was upon the mic. All soccer MCs was on the bite. Biting on my rhymes, stealing my style. Biting on the ice like a crocodile. You know I rocked so hard it wasn't true. One the virgin girl. And a mama too. Sex. Sex. That's what I want. Sex. Oh yeah. Sex. Hello and welcome to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill After Dark episode number one where we go to the the back back of the the store store. and read the comic books that, you know, maybe your mother didn't want you to read, probably shouldn't be reading. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be on our secret patron-only channel, so uh, thank you very much if you do uh, contribute to our Patreon. Uh, This is one of the uh, episodes that only you will be hearing. Uh, mm-hmm. Just going to say, up, up front, this is, of course, an adults-only comic book. It contains many references to sex and drugs. Uh, there is some violence, too, but that's nothing new in comics. So, if you're used to listening to this podcast with your children in the room, this is not the day to do it. No, certainly not. Uh, we're going to be talking about a book suggested a long time ago oh, yeah. by uh, Bobby Bain over at Nerdy Talk to Me at uh, on Twitter, and that's Nerdy Talk the number two me. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wanted us to discuss Cherry Pop Taught number one. This was published by Last Gasp in 1982, written and drawn by Larry Wells with Larry Todd and Jay Kinney. Came with a cover price of $2 and... Uh, this be the first printing, and we'll tell you why that's special a little bit later on. Yeah, but first let's learn about the uh, man Larry Wells himself. Born Lawrence Wells in 1948. On his blog, LarryWells.com, so he says, I was put in rapid learner classes in grade 5 where they taught us German, typing, and writing term papers. By the time I reached college, I refused to do any more term papers. He drew his first comic book in 1959 at the age of 10, and then 10 years after that, his work was featured regularly in Yellow Dog, which was an underground comics anthology published by the Print Mint in Berkeley, California. His work was also featured in San Francisco comic book, Funny Book, Bakersfield Country Comics, and American Flyer Funnies. These are all underground comics from the uh, early 70s, late 60s. Uh, in early 1970, Captain Guts, his first solo book, came out, and it sold really well. So after three issues, he says he immediately stopped doing it. Hmm. Now, Wells created Cherry Pop-Tart back in the early 1970s. She first appeared in the underground comic The Funny Book, number one. It came out in 1971 by Almighty Publishing in San Francisco, but didn't begin publishing comics uh, featuring—didn't begin publishing comics featuring primarily that character until 1980. Of that, Wells says— After having opened a sign shop, having a couple of children, getting a divorce, becoming a single dad, starting carnival ride painting, Cherry Pop-Tart appeared in her own book. It started selling really well, and the rest is history. 
The title would be changed to Cherry, beginning with issue number three, explained by Wells as his response to litigation or threats of litigation by Kellogg's over its Pop-Tarts trademark. Her name was technically changed to Cherry Pop Star, but she's nearly always referred to just by Cherry in the dialogue. And uh, he's pretty much never looked back from that. No. <laughs> it's, run 20, <laughs> it's run 22 issues from 1982 to 2002. Uh, it also spawned a four-issue limited series, Cherry's Jubilee, which would run in, 19, in 1992. Uh, this features stories by other writers and artists alongside Larry. Uh, Wells also produced the one-shot Cherry Deluxe in 1998, which was written by, of all people, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen that one. I'm... I haven't, no. Quite curious, I have to say. (laughs) Quite, quite curious. So, what's the big deal about this thing being a first printing? Well, this edition contains a story titled Vampironica by Larry Todd, and we will be going into that story. Uh, It has allusions and parodies of characters from Riverdale and Archie Comics that are too close to be denied. I mean, a a straight-up rip-off parody of it. For sure. It was pulled from subsequent printings, but we will be covering it in today's episode. So here it is, Cherry Pop-Tart number one, 1982. The cover has a purple bar across the top displaying the logo. Cherry Pop-Tart in a very Archie-like typeface. Uh, Cherry stands next to it in a halter top. A stamp shows that this was condemned by the Comics Code Conspiracy, and of course, it's adults only. The price, $2, looks handwritten in a white box. And this is actually how you can tell a first printing from subsequent printings, because after the first one, the price raised to two fifty, and it was typeset in the box. Also, if it doesn't have Vampironica, there's your answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book claims to be published by Yeltsin and Ganif Comics, which is not true. Uh, book The cover depicts Cherry in a laced-up bodysuit and jeans, asking the reader, is this a sexist comic book? And behind her is what looks like the parking lot of a strip mall called Grunt Stores. Her best friend, L.E.D., is roller skating here, and a guy in a yellow van replied to Cherry with, I don't know, but I know what I like. And the stores behind them are called Drek and Shuck and Jive. Hmm. Uh, the whole thing has a very 1970s aesthetic, and uh, I would bet, that the cover was drawn in the 1970s, and that's why. <laughs> Very likely. <laughs> if we hop to the inside cover, it's uh, lots of the same exact images on the front, but in black and white. And now the characters are selling a Cherry Pop-Tart t-shirt. Uh, we don't think uh, this order form will be honored anymore, uh, so you could probably do a search on, like, Etsy.com or something Yeah, for that, the matter of fact, I can guarantee that's where you will find your Cherry <laughs> Pop-Tart t-shirts. <laughs> Get all your Cherry Pop-Tart gear. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, our first story is Cherry Pop-Tart in the Hot Rod Boogie. Copyright 1977, Larry Wells. Uh, now, hot rods are typically old, classic American cars with large engines, modified for faster speed and probably noise. Yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> parts of the body or frame may be modified to lighten the load or to, gr- or to decrease wind resistance. Uh, the predecessors to the hot rod were the modified cars used in the Prohibition era by bootleggers in order to evade law enforcement. Hot rods first appeared in the late 1930s in Southern California, where people were already racing cars along the dry lake beds. In accordance with the Southern California Timing Association, the SCTA, and uh, other car clubs and groups. They would gain popularity after World War II when many returning soldiers gained the technological training required in order to work on their own cars. Yeah, so that was interesting. It's like they, they left as... Uh, newbies, they came back as uh, car mechanics all of a sudden. Sure. Probably plane mechanics, too, a lot of them. <laughs> uh, the first hot rods were old cars. Uh, at that time, most often Fords, typically Model Ts, Model As, or Model Bs, modified to reduce weight. 
Engine swaps often involve fitting the Ford Flathead V8 engine, known as the Flatty, into these older frames. After World War II, many small military airports around the country were either abandoned or rarely used, allowing hot rodders across the country to race on marked courses. The National Hot Rod Association was founded in 1951 to take drag racing off the streets and into controlled environments. And weirdly, that seems to be when this story in Cherry Pop-Tart is taking place, right? The 1950s. Seems like it, yeah. The time of Greasers and Bobby Soxers and the Steve Allen show. So, all right, little trip back in time. <laughs> yes, into the story, we have Ronnie and his hot rod looking to pick up Cherry after a group therapy session. His hot rod billows smoke, and it even looks noisy. It really does. Cherry says... Ooh, here comes Ronnie in that tough car. Hey, Ronnie, why don't you give me a ride in your car? Huh? Oh, sure. Hop in, Cherry. Ronnie looks just a little bit like Jughead Jones from Archie Comics with a greaser haircut, smoking a cigarette. Car takes off with a vroom and a cloud of exhaust. Oh, you want to get a Coke? Hey, Ronnie, can I drive your car? Nope, I let nobody drive my car. Aw, come on. I said no. Cherry leans across Ronnie to say hi to someone through the driver's side window and, in doing so, shoves her chest in his face. This seems uh, intentional to the keen observer, huh? I, would, I think so. I'm not, I would have to hmm. see it a few more times. Oh, hey. look! There's Freddy! Hi, Freddy! Ronnie produces some pills, and he says, Here, you want to drop some meds? Some All right. <laughs> then let's go drag racing, okay? Oh, uh, Sure. Uh, Seco Barbital Sodium, marketed under the brand name Seconol, is a barbiturate derivative patented in the United States in 1934. It was prescribed, some might say overprescribed, for epilepsy, insomnia, and as a preoperative medic- medication for sort- short surgical procedures. The capsules, produced by Eli Lilly, were red, and so they were called Reds, Red Devils, Red Dillies, and other red-based names. They were, there were many accidental overdoses of the drug in the late 1960s through the 1970s, but the prescription of it decreased in the 1980s with the rise of benzodiazepines like Valium, Xanax, and Clonopin. So everything worked out just fine. Mm-hmm. Now, a muscle car pulls up next to Ronnie and Cherry, and based just on the grill, it looks like a 70s model to me. Mm. Now, in the background, some guy is being held up on the street. Uh, this really isn't important to the story, just a little flavor of the day. There's a lot of little background things like that in these sure. books. Uh, Cherry says, come on, Ronnie, let's drag him. Ronnie turns into the parking lot of a liquor store and goes, I got a better idea. Later, the two are drinking and smoking weed in the car on a hill that overlooks the town. Uh, it also seems to be above a garbage dump, which uh, <laughs> must be nice for the nostrils, very romantic. Sure. Uh, Ronnie gets handsy, very graphically handsy on on Cherry, but Cherry wants him to cool it, uh, not really to stop touching her, but to quit being awkward. He keeps like putting his elbow in her face and like you know yeah. putting her into the gear shift, so he's he's having trouble. Come on, Cherry! Come on, what? Ronnie at this point undoes his belt and uh, pulls it out. <laughs> hey, what are you doing with that thing? This is funsies, no pokey. Oh, Cherry, you know, it's a long way back to town. Okay, Ronnie, I'll tell you what. I'll make you a little deal. I'll give you a nice Joe Blob if you let me drive your car. Huh? No, no, no fucking way. Aw, Ronnie, come on. I promise it'll be a good one. Oh, well, uh, spit. Uh, All right. Gosh, Ronnie, you really mean it? Really, really? You're really a swell guy, Ronnie. 
Cherry does her thing and uh, seems pretty uh, good at it. Uh, Ronnie lasts only three panels. Uh, then she wants to drive the hot rod, and uh, by that we mean the car. That's right. <laughs> Come on, Ronnie, you promised. Oh, spit. So her- Cherry hops into the driver's seat and says, Okay, where's first? Uh-oh. <laughs> you don't want to hear that. No. Now the car takes off with a tire-shredding squeal. Then Cherry bombs the car around, uh, flying straight off of a low cliff. Wee! This is fun, Ronnie. Quick, tickle my clit. I think I'm going to come in my pants. Ronnie looks terrified for his dear life, and uh, at this point, so are we. Uh, <laughs> but he uh, complies. Ronnie, come on! Oh, all right. But for Chris' sake, son, slow down, Cherry. Ooh, yes, yes, that's it! Cherry and Ronnie careen into the side of another car with a wham. The cops show up, and Ronnie is arrested. Cop says, ah, all right, kid, we got you this time. We're going to haul your ass in. You're a goddamn menace. As Ronnie is led away in cuffs, Cherry is led to the back seat of a SWAT squad car. Yeah, we'll take this poor girl home. And in the back seat? Uh-uh, no pokey. That's what that's what these this story, uh, this book needs is interstitial music, right? You think? Yeah, it does. It needs a uh, interstitial music and delousing. Uh, I need some uh, some a uh, Purell or something. Well, um, now we, luckily now we've got a very Halloween themed story to get you in that Halloween mood that we know you need. Ooh, <laughs> this is Vampironica, copyright 1977, Larry Todd. Let's meet him. He was born April 6, 1948, in Buffalo, New York. He studied art at Syracuse University, and there he met Vaughn Baudet of uh, Cheech Wizard fame. Uh, they would become frequent collaborators. Uh, Todd created comics for Galaxy Science Fiction and wrote for If. Those are both science fiction magazines. Uh, later collaborated with Baudet. Uh, is it Baudet or Bode? It's or... Baudet. You got it right, yeah. Okay. Uh, on a series of cover paintings for Galaxy and magazines published by Warren Publishing, like uh, Creepy and Eerie. After a brief stay in New York, in 1971, Larry Todd moved to San Francisco, just like everybody else. Everyone in the underground uh, comic scene, yeah. <laughs> and wouldn't you know, while there, he began contribu- contributing work to the underground newspaper and comic book scene. Uh, he created the strip Dr. Atomic initially for John Bryan's short-lived Sunday paper, uh, which was not actually a Sunday paper, but an underground comic, and then as a comic book series published by Last Gasp. Dr. Atomic ran in various iterations until 1981. Todd's first solo title was Tales of the Amorkins, published by Company and Sons in 1971. In 1972, Charles Todd and Charles Dallas created the comic series Paranoia, also published by Company and Sons. Todd and a collective of other cartoonists self-published Compost Comics and Enigma, two different comics, in 1973. And he also contributed gag cartoons to the men's magazine Cuck in 1977. Yeah. There was a men's magazine called Cock, but it was C-O-Q. Oh, that's clever. That's fine, then. And that very same year, he drew this Vampironica strip. But we also, I also want to just close out on him. Uh, in 1989, Larry Todd's house burned down, and more than 35 of Todd's colleagues contributed to a benefit comic book published by Ripoff Press. The introduction was by Harlan Ellison, and contributors included Mark Baudet, Spain Rodriguez, Justin Green, Trina Robbins, S. Clay Wilson, Jackson, um, Richard Corbin, Peter Bagg, Dan O'Neill, and Willie Murphy, a real who's who of underground and independent comics. 
And in uh, 2010, Larry Wells reported that Todd was working for Duncan Designs Incorporated of Santa Rosa, California, painting carnival rides. He said, fun houses, mirror mazes, and dark rides at Owen Trailers in Riverside, California, where they build such things. So, cool. Yeah. Uh, now, the opening splash of this page depicts Vampironica, a smirking brunette woman in knee-high stiletto boots and some skimpy panties with a bat charm on them. And... Nothing else. Uh, she gazes into a mirror, and all around her are the opulent trappings of wealthy Victorian life, which pretty much is right in a vampire's wheelhouse, if you think about it. Sure. Now, uh, the caption reads, By day, she is Veronica Towers, wealthy debutante socialite and girl about town, living the life of ease. But at ease, she is not. Don't be misled by her wealth, for wealth cannot alone satiate her sanguine craving. So at night, she slips out in her Black Triumph TR2 to secret apartment in Laurel Canyon, dons her sleazy, silky outfit, and becomes Vampironica. And she says, Aha! Dressed for action. It's time to make the scene down on the strip. Caption reads, But first, she splits the black lace undies of night. She puts in her very special upper plate. That's actually, that sentence has a very rare use of the word air. <laughs> an air which is like, I saw that and I was like, come on, dude, really? Uh, it looks like the upper plate to, to some dentures with fangs on them, so that's how she gets her bite on. Uh, there's also a bat on the box that holds them, which is with a nice little uh, touch. You know, she didn't need to put that there, but that was cute. So, Vampironica slips into her convertible sports car, and she's still topless. Talking about Veronica or the car? Uh, both. And she's headed to a party called Dance Your Pants Off. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, caption, off into the neon night she speeds, heading for the glitter garden of delights, where big rumors told of approaching stars and the stink of their dirty love. Orgy said Mick Jugular's gonna be there tonight. They say he's a vampire, too. It's got a good name for one, right? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, very clever. Now, uh, Vampironica cruises down from the hills and into the town. Uh, I guess we're going to call this Riverdale, right? Probably Liverdale, really, but yes. <laughs> Maybe <something>. Liverdale, yes. <laughs> Liverdale. Now, a fake Reggie Mantle is covering the door to the party, and uh, his name is... Hiya, Reggie. Is Orgy here? Boy, Reggie goes, <laughs> yeah, with the with the that pill bottle pal of his junkhead. So yeah, Orgy is Archie, junkhead is Jughead. Let's just make that obvious right here. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to worry about any lawsuits, so we can just say that. Uh, Vampironica finds Orgy and Junkhead at a table in a, in this crowded club, and they look just like underground comics versions of Archie characters. Although Orgy has a, a porn mustache on. Mm-hmm. Junkhead goes. Hi, Vampy. Want to get high? Here, have some yellows and some whites. Orgy, is it true? Is Mick Jugular really going to sit in tonight? Orgy is sitting with a demure blonde woman. This must be the allegory for Betty Cooper. She's known here as Biddy. Orgy and Junkhead chide Vampironica for being a groupie, but she brushes them off. Orgy says... Hey, anyway, Vampy, uh, he's going to be jamming with little feces. Uh, keep your panties on, or maybe we'll get you backstage. Dracula, meet Stragulass. <laughs> Have another quaalude, orgy. And then Biddy goes, Jesus wouldn't approve of this carrying on. And Vampironica says, Oh, Biddy, shut up with that Jesus crap. 
get a good look at the interior of this space now, and it uh, looks pretty gross. It sure does. Uh, it's uh, packed to the walls with unwashed, hairy people, and uh, someone even vi- violently vomiting, which uh, I-, I think if I was there, that might be me. It could be, but in this case, it's Moose. I, uh, I mean, <laughs> Juice. Yeah, he's a, he's a bouncer here. Yeah, as Junkhead goes, hey, Juice. Uh, hiya, Junkhead. Here, have some reds, Juice. Hiya, Juice. Can I go backstage to meet Mick Jugular? Uh, maybe, but, um, you gotta suck me off first, Vampy. What? Oh, god damn you. Okay. After she ditches her special fake teeth, she gets right to work. Uh, right there at a table with everyone else. I, and, I gotta uh, say, like, what? Okay, yeah, there we go. Yeah, no privacy. You know, you, 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 they ask you for privacy even you get patted down by the TSA, but not for this. Not for this. Um, <laughs> and uh, just like in our earlier story, after three panels, the juice is loose. All right, so you're going to take me backstage now, aren't you? The hell no! I can't. I got fired last week. Ha <laughs> ha! Why you? But now it's time for the band, the Small Feces, with a uh, Mick Jugular sitting in. I thought the band was called Little Feces. Uh, we we can't hear them through the comic book anyway. So really, what's that's true? What, you can call them whatever yeah. you want. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Uh, maybe maybe in different regions there. <laughs> Uh, maybe there is already a little feces That's in right. Riverdale, or Liverdale. Back from that one. <laughs> now, Mick Jugular is on stage holding a guitar incorrectly and uh, looking rather sickly. Vampironica can dig it, even from way back in the crowd. Yeah, she thinks to herself, geez, if he is a vampire, this could be really groovy. And if he isn't, well, he must be able to spare some blood, a pint at least. Most people just don't have like a pint of blood to spare for total strangers, do they? I don't think so. I mean, I know that I know this is sort of a society of uh, panhandling, but a pint of blood—that's that's a bit much. Yeah, I mean, you got to carry around a fridge, right? Take on that. I'm just, there's a lot of problems here. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of overhead in that business. <laughs> uh, now, as the set concludes, Vampironica makes her way backstage. This time, she offers her moral talents to a bouncer, an actual bouncer. Mm-hmm but then injects some slumber roll using her fake teeth, which knocks him unconscious. She thinks to herself, He passes out, I drink his blood off, and I get backstage. That's what we in uh, the corporate world call a win-win, That's right? right. Everybody wins, yeah. uh, except, except for the bouncer, yeah. He, you know, yeah, he, he about died. Him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, when Vampironica gets backstage, she finds Biddy is there waiting. What? What are you doing here, you Christ creep? Likewise, dupe of Satan. And the two of them start scrapping. You're so full of people, bull. I'm going to send you off to heaven. You damn hemosexual. I'll teach you to horn in on. And then Mick Jugular and his entourage show up. And he says, Hey, now, what are you birds up doing here? Vampironica instantly makes a play for Mick, and uh, Biddy takes the opportunity to escape. Mick Jugular... I'm Vampironica Dodge, and I'm a vampire, and I want to suck you up. Well, now, you're an exotic enough number. Let's see if you can suck me like you can fight, pussy. Then Biddy says, three gets you five. You can't get it up. Then she thinks to herself, I better go get Orgy and Junkhead pronto. 
Vamp Veronica kneels before Mick Jugular and gets right to work, and she's pleased to find that he has no t- a trouble achieving erection, but he passes out before she can take any of his blood. The rest of the, although I don't see why that should stop her, but fine. Right. Uh, the rest of the band rushes in to save Mick Jugular, and they toss Vampironica out of, out of the place right on her butt. Get off of him. She's suck him dry. And stay out, you bloody whistling bitch. We only like boys in this band. Well, I mean, Mick didn't seem too troubled about a girl warming his breakfast a minute ago. I don't know what the hell. Ah, he seemed okay with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Woody sees Vampironica and tells her to calm down. But Vampironica is in the throes of bloodlust. I want blood. I want it all. Blood. Give it to me. I want it. And Orgy says, Shut up. Sit down and quit trying to bite me. Then Vampironica sets her sights on Junkhead. What? Blood. Orgy, she's crazy. Leave me alone. And Vampironica bites Junkhead on his neck with a loud bite sound. Hey, I just shot up. Then Vampironica keels over, and Orgy says, Holy shopers, an oral overdose just like that. Instant karma. And Junkhead shoots up anew. So, you know, you know that that was not a big deal. <laughs> uh, later, Orgy and Junkhead are sitting in the back of Biddy's Volkswagen bug, laughing about the evening's events, and they're also snorting cocaine. When suddenly, they have an epiphany. What? The light. The glorious light. We've been sinners, Lord, but we'll be good now. Just you wait and see. Orgy and Junkhead hop out of the back of the car with halos on, dancing free. Jesus loves us. This we know. Hey, what are you guys? And then Junkhead and Orgy fall over the side of a bridge and onto a large shipping vessel. They each land with a splat, so they just have to assume that they died. And uh, Biddy drives on. Just you and me, Lord. You and me. You feel like that? Page was added. It's like, it's like my favorite episode at the Grassy Junior High, where that uh, that kid jumps off the bridge, right? That's right. It's very similar. Yeah. Uh, although he didn't, he didn't have a Jesus epiphany. Uh, he didn't. I, I really got the impression that that page was added after the fact that that uh, Larry Todd wanted to end with Vampironica keeling over and Jughead shooting up, and then someone was like, "Ah, we need one more page." So they just—it's very weird. Yeah. It it's, just you know, I was like, I was ready, it, ready for it to be over. Although that can be said about all the stories in this guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one I like a lot, though. This is America's favorite lookalikes, the Wholesome Twins, copyright 1975, Jay Kinney. In fact, it says, adapted from the novel by Jay Kinney, which is not true. There was no novel by Jay Kinney. Oh. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I, know, I know you're already on Amazon. To book. Uh, <laughs> born 1950 on Earth, he was an original contributor to the seminal underground comic Bijou Funnies, which had eight issues and first published by the Print Mint, then Kitchen Sink Press from 1968 to 1973. This crew was also Skip Williamson, Jay Lynch, and Robert Crumb, so really the linchpins of the scene. Uh, Kinney also edited Young Lust, a satire of romance comics, in the early 1970s with Zippy the Pinhead creator Bill Griffith. He later founded the political comic Anarchy Comics, which was published sporadically by Last Gas between 1978 and 1987. But before that, he drew this very messed up comic strip. But just to close him out, in the 1980s, Jay Kinney moved away from comics and cartooning and became the editor for an esoteric magazine called Gnosis from 1985 to 1999. He's currently an author on several books about Western mysticism and the Gnostic tradition. 
What about yes, and yeah, how about that? And then in the story, we meet the wholesome twins, uh, Julie and Sue. Uh, this story is not a send up to uh, the Full House uh, Olsen twins, but, uh, <laughs> but a different set of twins. This is the Bad, the Patty Duke show, which starred Patty Duke, that ran on uh, ABC Network for 104 episodes from September 18th, 1963 to April 27th, 1966. In it, Patty played two characters, Patty Lane and Kathy Lane, identical twin. Cousins. <laughs> okay. Uh, they had to have a reason why these hijinks would uh, would begin while uh, Patty was still in high school. Right. Um, now, uh, the hijinks specifically invariably involved Kathy standing in for Patty or vice versa for some important event or moment to hilarious results. Uh, this comic is also partly a parody of the Doublemint Twins. This was a marketing ploy by Wrigley's Chewing Gum involving twin sisters existing in chewing gum. Cool. Uh, this began in 1939 with stylized illustrations of twins, and advertisements continued with print ads and later television commercials featuring actual twins as spokespersons. From 1959, the original Doublemint Twins were 21-year-old Jane and Joan Boyd of Hammond, Indiana. They appeared in an advertisement for Doublemint until 1963, when Joan became pregnant. At the time this story was conceived, uh, the twins were likely Jenny and Terry Frankel, or June and Patricia Mackerel, who also had been the Tony twins for Tony Home Permanent, which used the slogan, Which twin has the Tony? I do not remember that ad at all. Me uh, indeed, I think it's way before our time, quite frankly, Probably, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, indeed, there's an inset of the wholesome twins at a younger time, touching fingers and saying, she's a breath mint and she's a candy mint, while a caption below reads, the twins when last seen in 1971. And in that little thing, they have the inset, they have very Patty Duke-esque haircuts. Mm-hmm. Into the story, we join the wholesome twins in their shared apartment, where a caption clues us in. Well, it's been quite a while since we last heard from Julie and Sue. Frankly, they're no longer as wholesome as they once were. But then, who is? Sue's on unemployment, but Julie just landed a good job at the CIA. Sue is angry and clutching a copy of the Washington Post. On it, the headline reads, Assassinations, Definite CIA Tie. Other headlines read, New UFO Sightings and More Bizarre Cattle Mutilations, No Blood. And Sue's holding in. She says, At the CIA? Haven't you been reading the news? Those creeps are worse than Adolf Hitler. And Julie, Julie goes, Now, Sue, don't be silly. It's just a little file clerk job. File clerk? That's like being a bathroom attendant at Auschwitz. Oh, Pooh, you're beginning to sound like Patty Hearst. At least I'm, I'm at least going to give it a try. Patty Hearst is the granddaughter of publishing tycoon William Randolph Hearst. On February 4th, 1974, she was violently kidnapped by radical guerrilla group, the Symbionese Liberation Army. On April 3rd, 1974, two months after she was abducted, Hearst announced on an audio tape that she had joined the SLA and assumed the name Tanya. She was later seen on closed-circuit camera robbing a bank with the SLA on April 15th. On May 16th of that year, she fired from several shots... Uh, from two guns at a sporting goods store owner that attempted to accost a fellow member of the SLA for shoplifting. Escaping from the area, Hearst and the Harrises hijacked two cars, abducting the owners. One, a young man, found Hearst so personable that he was reluctant to report the incident. 
Patty was also involved in making improv- improvised uh, explosive devices to kill police during a 1975 rally and was the getaway driver for several robberies. On uh, September 18, 1975, she was arrested in a San Francisco apartment, and she, at the time she only weighed 87 pounds. Uh, she was sentenced to 35 years in prison for the bank robbery, but after 22 months, President Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence to time served, releasing her eight months before her first parole hearing. In 2001, President Bill Clinton granted her a full pardon. Now back to the story. We're one Monday morning, three weeks later. Julie and Sue are lying in their beds in the same room, and Julie is distressed. Oh, Sue, I feel terrible. I think I have the flu or something. What? Well, why don't why you just call in sick and stay home today? No, no, I can't do that. The CIA doesn't have any sick days. They'll just stick you with your own special hospital with their own special doctors. Actually, it sounds nicer than most employer health care plans, I'll be honest with you. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Say, we're twins. What if you went into my place for a day or two? They'd never know the difference. You want me to work in your pig job? You've got to be kidding. No, I'm not. It's easy. The job really is a snap. All you got to remember is... Uh, is what? Well, we don't find out yet, but Sue is at the gates of the CIA. Mm, Where signs read, this is a mirage, and (laughs) scram, go away, nothing here anyway. This must be the place. Sue gets to work filing at a row of filing cabinets that looks endless. Now she's filing CIA reports in triplicate. I don't see how Julie can stand this job. I've never been so bored in my life. One of the files stands out to Sue, and she begins to read it. Ew! How disgusting! This file has bloodstains all over it. And she thinks, one little peek isn't going to hurt, is it? The first page of the file alludes to mysterious cattle mutilations being the work of the government in order to sow chaos. Good Lord! This is outrageous! I can't believe it! I think I'm going to faint! And wouldn't you know it? She does. Uh, Sue wakes up in an unknown bed wearing a hospital gown, Uh, the the kind where you can see the patient's butt from the back. You know, it's open. And you can see her butt is the point, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Where am I? (laughs) All I remember is reading that top-secret file, and then everything went black. Yikes! They've stuck me in one of their special hospitals with special doctors. I gotta get out of here before they lobotomize me or something. God damn it! Those perverts stole my clothes! Sue peeks out of the hallway and sees an elderly nurse coming her way with a tray of food. The nurse goes, I do hope Miss Wholesome enjoys her last meal before her lobotomy. The coast is clear! Just a little old nurse! Sue pounces on the nurse, knocking her down and sprints away. The nurse raises the alarm, so Sue turns a corner and ducks into a room. The door has signs reading, Nix, no admittance, no, and stay out or else. Inside the room are water cooler bottles full of blood. And the uh, water cooler all prepped with a full bottle as well. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, this, uh, yeah, nobody likes changing them. So it's it's a full set. service. I like, I like yeah. the delivery guy does it. It's a nice Sure. Thing. Now, Sue is grossed out by this, uh, as you might imagine. Then she spies a truck pulled up to the loading dock right in front of her. Now, if there's just the key left in the ignition by mistake... And, of course, there is. Uh, so Sue peels out through the CIA's gates with gusto. yee She speeds away with a zoom. And gets pulled over by the highway patrol. 
90 in a 55 zone? Honey, ain't you ever heard of the gas crisis? Say, you ain't hardly got no clothes on. Another officer opens the back of the delivery truck and says, Hey, Ferd, the back of this truck is full of bottles of blood. Honey, we gonna take you in. And later, back at the wholesome twins' apartment. Sue looks really worn out, uh, slumped in an easy chair. God, Julie, what an ordeal. Don't ever ask me to substitute for you again. Fat chance, you got me fired from my job. And uh, for a little context, the oil crisis of 1973 began in October of that year when the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, better known as OPEC and better and easier to say as OPEC, yeah. uh, proclaimed an embargo on oil to countries that supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, this was an attack on Israel by Egypt and Syria that began on the holiday Yom Kippur or Yom Kippur. I, I, I always say a different they're, 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 It's fine. Interchangeable. Uh, now, since none of the Israeli forces withdrew uh, during it, and the uh, countries involved did not take away support, the embargo is regarded as a failure. It did, however, change life in America and around the world in last and long-lasting ways. Oil prices rose per barrel fourfold worldwide, from three dollars to twelve dollars, and even higher in the United States. The existing system of price controls in place limited the price of old oil that had already been discovered, while allowing newly discovered oil to be sold at much higher prices. This is in order to encourage investment and exploration for new oil. Uh, the result was that everyone ditched their old oil completely, which created an even greater scarcity. See, Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, this scarcity was addressed by rationing in the U.S. and many other countries. This took a few forms. Here's a couple of them. There was odd-even rationing allowed vehicles with license plates having an odd number as the last digit or a vanity license plate that was also considered an odd number to buy gas only on odd-numbered days of the month, while others could buy only on even-numbered days. In some states, a three-color flag system was used to denote gasoline availability at service stations, green for unrationed availability, yellow for restricted ration sales, and red for out-of-stock completely. Rationing led to violent incidents when truck drivers striked for two days in December 1973 over the limited supplies allocated for their industry. They didn't have enough to truck, Yikes, so they yeah. got mad. Uh, in Pennsylvania and Ohio, non-striking truckers were shot at by striking truckers, and in Arkansas, trucks of non-strikers were attacked with bombs. <laughs> to help reduce consumption in 1974, a national maximum speed limit of 55 miles, was miles per hour was imposed. Uh, that was reversed on November 28th, 1995, when Bill Clinton signed the National Highway Designation Act. But a lot of states still hang on to that 55 uh, as their state speed limit. Mm -hmm. The crisis was a major factor in shifting Japan's economy away from oil-intensive industries over to electronics, which they would dominate from the 1980s onward. Japanese automakers also benefited from the crisis, offering smaller, more gas-efficient vehicles. And the embargo lasted from October 1973 to March 1974, at which point everything went back to normal. Except for gas prices, they would fall, but never to their pre-gas crisis numbers ever again. Yes. Now, also included in this book is uh, some uh, pinups. We got a uh, Cherry Pop-Tart pinup number one. 1977, L. Wells. Cherry's on her bed, naked, some school books strewn before her, and uh, she's just finished uh, taking care of business. Yeah, she says, now that's the way to cram for an exam. 
It looks like a psychology textbook's in front of her. Uh, two chapter titles that we can read are Neurosis in Ferns and Wombat Psychology. Wow. Both uh, very sought-after skills. I, I, uh, I know you did your whole thesis on wombat psychology, right? Yeah. Uh, fern psychology. <laughs> oh, was weird. sorry. It was a mixture of the two. It was a hybrid. Uh, now, another one we got, uh, Cherry Pop-Tart in The Invitation. Uh, this is a story, uh, 1977, L. Wells. And this one... Uh, is probably a little too embarrassing for us to voice act. Uh, trust us, we're doing you a favor by not. Cherry uh, is in her bedroom with her best friend, L.E.D., who's trying on some clothes. Cherry is also on the phone with one of her boyfriends named Eddie. During the conversation with Eddie, Cherry and L.C.D., they get to doing it. And Cherry uh, has an orgasm and hangs up on Eddie. Yeah, and uh, we're kind of going to do the same thing in this next one. Uh, Jerry Pop-Tart in School Dazed, copyright 1977, L. Wells. Uh, you know, both these stories are just, you know, drawings of sex. Uh, yeah. Cherry's math teacher, Mr. Feeney, keeps her after class because she hasn't done any homework, and they have very graphic sex in the classroom, and not that Mr. Feeney either, a much younger one. Uh, <laughs> Cherry's punchline here is, Wow! You're a really good teacher. Mm-hmm. Cherry Pop Todd, pinup number two, 1977 L. Wells. Cherry is standing, get this, naked in her bedroom, mm-hmm. looking at us over her shoulder. And her bedroom is a wreck, you know? Put away your clothes, girl. Come on now. The girls are so much grosser than boys. They all fit all, I tell you, yeah. especially at that age. But uh, And now here, here's another non-cherry story. Strange journey into the silicone... So, oh, the Silicone Circus with Trinatron, the Psychotic Sexpot. And a lot of those words have superfluous P's in front of them. Yeah. This is also copyright 1977, L. Wells. We're in deep space looking at some kind of way station. Yes, caption reads, Astral Acres, a luxury housing orbitract, just 10 minutes flight from the Eisenhower, Eisenhower shopping station. Uh, Trina Tron is doing some digital studies, which uh, she finds boring. She says, spit. I'm tired of this same old crap. I need some action. Hey, Mom, I'm splitting this nowhere scene. Do you hear me? Trina's mom is sitting under a very futuristic salon hairdryer. It's a dreamatic, and it's uh, keeping her very placid. Uh, Trina turns up the dream control dial until smoke is coming out from her mother's ears. Here. Get high, Mom. Check you later, sweetie. Tee-hee. Trina robs her parents' spaceship and takes off. Wow, this new sports craft of Dad's is really goes. She meets up with a really long-faced loser-looking dude. Uh, some some dudes who yeah. are really yeah. They look they look like a couple of jerks. Uh, one of them look, actually looks a lot like little like a short Joey Ramone. <laughs> yeah, one of the doofus goes, "Hey, Trina, what's going on? Let's go for a ride, you guys. I got my dad's cruiser." And we can see that Trina is not a very safe driver. No. Uh, but the doofus goes, this is a tough craft, Trina. Yeah, let's go find some action. I've been bored spitless all day. Got any stimia pills, Arch? Then a crude biker, crude biker on a spacefaring chopper with a stretched out front speeds on by. Lobo? Sure, why not? Wow, man, that looks like the way to cruise. He's cute, too. Trina puts on a spacesuit in order to head outside. You guys watch the boat for me, okay? But wait. Trina floats outside her dad's sports craft. Hey, spaceman, want to take me for a ride? 
<laughs> Far out. And then on board the spaceship. Jeez, I've never driven one this big. I don't know if I can control it. Trina and Lobo are already naked and smoking marijuana, and Doofus flies Trina's dad's ship right into the back of Lobo's bike, destroying it. And probably everyone else involved, right? Uh, not Lobo, Chris. He's a Snarnian. He's a Snarnian, and he's indestructible. Ah, yeah. Maybe, maybe he was dropped down to like a drop of blood and just came That's back. He so came I'm, back yeah, I'm sure he That's survived. Fine. He yeah, survived. He's fine. He survived. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Dear Cherry, which is in you know, all letters column of sorts, and. Uh, as you might imagine, she gives some uh, very naughty advice. You know, we did think about putting some of this in there, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's not nice stuff. It's it's mm-hmm. it's bad. It's bad advice from for bad people from bad people. Sure. So yeah, we go right to the inside back cover. There's a one panel cartoon, copyright 1977, Larry Wells. Cherry and LED are walking out of the public health clinic. Yeah, and Sherry is holding her hip. We have jagged pain spikes emanating from it. And Sherry says, That hurt! That Billy Ferguson will never get me up in the projection booth again! Treatment of venereal diseases like syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia involve painful injections from long needles into the body. <laughs> or so we've heard. Right. Uh, now, other titles from Last Gasp Publishing to Buy, which include... Commies from Mars and Robert Crumb's magazine Weirdo. Which I don't know. I don't know. Last Gap, Gasp uh, did Weirdo, but I didn't either. Live and learn. That's cool. And there were there mm-hmm. were some other titles there uh, that really sounded interesting. That I'm sure once again we just can't pick up with that uh, form anymore. So maybe yeah. we'll try to dig up some of those in the future. Uh, on the back cover is a pretty nicely colored uh, title page from Vampironica. So. Yep. You got that. I'm not sure what the reprint has on the back page, but it can't be. I that. wonder. Yeah, yeah I, I really, I really do wonder. Uh, it's been, I, you know, it's, you know, we got the, we got this. Obviously, we downloaded it. I have trades of the stuff, but I think the only number one issue was must have been a reprint. I don't think I ever saw the original. Mm. So gotcha. this, this was a cool little uh, exercise for me, and it was also a creepy exercise for Chris, so that was nice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're going to wrap up Larry Wells, as we like to do. Uh, Not much to say, but it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, After many years in the San Francisco Bay Area, Wells and his wife Sharon moved to Roswell, New Mexico, and then to Albuquerque, where he continues his involvement in both comics and commercial artwork. It appears that the Wells' moved to Roswell to capitalize on the UFO fad that dominated much of the late 1990s. A 2007 article in USA Today reads, Larry Wells is an artist. He once dabbled in pornographic comic books. His space-themed artwork is scattered on signs and buildings around town, including a magnificent 110-foot mural on a building near McDonald's. Their shop speed features a spacewalk. Larry's look at the Roswell incident, a tunnel of painted scenes, colorfully glowing under black light. Tourists drop $2 on a plastic tube and step into the portal. He said, people come from halfway around the world to see something in Roswell, but they're not sure what they want. This is my attempt to show them, he explains. The Wells' lament that Roswell hasn't done even more to embrace the UFO phenomenon. The signs coming into town say, Welcome to Roswell, dairy capital of the Southwest, Sharon Wells says. Are you kidding? You should exploit the UFO thing. It's a commodity. When you say Roswell, everyone thinks about aliens. They confess... What? 
I usually think of cheese. Uh, well, yeah, that's the other. That'd be the second thing. <laughs> uh, they confessed to being UFO commandos. Uh, one night in the summer of 1998, the Wells's loaded a ladder into a convertible and drove down Main Street painting black alien eyes on street lamps. They didn't give us permission, Larry says, but they didn't really blame us for doing it either. In 2006, Wells drew the cover for Jeff Walker's album, Welcome to Caucus Country. Walker's Country. Caucus Country. This is a uh, country metal album by Jeffrey Walker of the band Caucus. Uh, if you if you can enjoy as much of Cherry Pop Star as you like over at Cherry Comics with an X dot com. And actually, I wish I I wish I could really say that that's true, but there's actually very little over there. There's some original artwork and yeah, not much. I, I, if you want Cherry Pop Tart stuff, your best bet would be Etsy or you know Amazon or. Find our secret download that I got. So uh, that wraps up our first ever episode of Cosmic Treadmill After Dark. How do you feel now? How many showers do you need there, Chris? I I, I'm, I might just throw myself out the window. <laughs> this is this is the other this is another side of comics, folks, and uh, we want to do one of these every month, a uh, mm-hmm. After Dark, just for the patron patron channel. Um, so, you know, we'll, obviously we're taking more suggestions, and we've got our own ideas of, of books we want to do. But if you want to uh, talk to us about this episode or other comics you want us to cover, or you just want to tell us that uh, we ruined your grandmother's Thanksgiving or something like that, you can write to <laughs> us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And uh, this is a private podcast, so we don't need to even go through the rest of the regular spiel. Thank yep. you very much to all of our patrons. We absolutely very much appreciate it, and Chris and I are super humbled by the response that uh, far exceeds our uh, expectations. So thanks very 100%. much. We we hope that you are uh, you know, getting, getting stuff out of it when we provide content like this. Certainly, and we'd also like to uh, thank again uh, Bobby Bain for the suggestion and uh, the uh, mental scarring. That's right. Yeah, you don't get a, <laughs> you don't get another suggestion, Bobby Bain. You only get one like this. Now you got to go back to uh, you know mainstream comics, as as we like to say. Give me Green Lantern or something. You yeah. know, and listen, give me, give me Green Lantern where all they have is pedophilia. That's all. No. <laughs> uh, but I think that's all we got for him this time. Chris got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill coquettishly. See you. Content's under pressure. I just might blow. Content's under pressure. I just might blow. Content's under pressure. I just might blow. I'm not ready for the wild thing. Staring in the mirror and what do I see? Drops and drops of sweat pouring down on me. Depression. Even school fingers kind of screwy because I passed up on the school door now. Something about rejection, it really turns her on. And Judy is like hawking me, she won't leave me alone. My buddy say, Yo, Julia, we gon' bust it out, dude. Cause making it with Judy gives you clown. But Jay's not a jerk, even though she is a teaser. I'm not about to treat the female like a teaser.